four expectant fathers were in a Minneapolis hospital waiting room while their wives were in labor. So as the nurse arrived and announced to the first man, congratulations, sir, you are the father of twins. Says, man, what a coincidence. I just happened to work for the Minnesota Twins baseball team. That's amazing. The nurse returned a little while longer and turned to the second man and said, sir, you are the father of triplets. And he said, oh, you're kidding me. I'll never live this down at work. I work for the 3M company. An hour later, while the two other men were passing around cigars, the nurse came back. This time, she turned to the third man, who had been quietly sitting in a corner, and she announced that his wife had just given birth to quadruplets. Stunned, he could barely reply, said, and she said, wait a minute, don't tell me. Another coincidence? He goes, yeah, you're not going to believe this. I work for the Four Seasons Resorts. <laughs> As he says that, the fourth man drops over and faints. He is laid out cold in the corner and they all go running over to him. They're trying to get him to come to and the nurses are there. And finally when he comes to, he's laying on the floor and all they can hear him saying under his breath over and over again, I knew I shouldn't have taken the job at the 7-Eleven. I knew I shouldn't have taken the job at the 7-Eleven. You know, when I hear stories like that, you know, they're funny, but they also lend themselves to some very serious questions. And the questions are this, is life merely a set of coincidences, one after another, with no apparent rhyme or reason, as if somehow or another we'll give birth to the number of children based upon where we work? Or is there a purpose and meaning behind all the events of this life? You know, men have long wrestled, you know, with the question of where, if anywhere, history is going. You know, is there a purpose, is there a goal, is there a culmination to history? Is there a grand scheme or a master plan? Or is it merely a succession of sunrises and sunsets of meaningless series of swiftly flowing years that, you know, lead nowhere but to the grave? Is history, as the Stoic philosophers of Paul's day taught, and as Eastern religions of our day teach, an endless series of cycles? Or even as the Epicurean philosophers of Paul's days taught, they taught, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. Viewing history in either of these terms is appealing to sinful man, for after all, if we don't get it right this time, or the next time, or the time after that, or the time after that, we get unlimited opportunities. Or it doesn't matter what choices one makes or how one lives life because death ends our existence. Yes, viewing history as purposeless appeals to sinful man since it grants them freedom to do whatever it is that they want to do with no fear of accountability to a divine moral judge. If there is no God, they reason, then why not do what you want to do? Why not live to please yourself? If there's no accountability and one doesn't have to answer to God or the Creator, then we can do anything we want to do in this lifetime and, and with impunity. You know, but despite such cynicism and despair and even hedonistic viewpoints, history is going somewhere. And in our ongoing study of the book of Acts, we come to a passage in the book that we've come to, and it's yet another passage that helps us to identify that, you know, a history is moving in a direction, and it reveals to us God's plan for man. If you've got your Bible, turn with me to Acts chapter 13, where we'll take a look at this account that's given to us as it addresses the question... Where is history going, and ultimately, what is the culmination of what God's plan is for man? 
In Acts chapter 13, starting with the verse 13, we read these words. It says, Now Paul and his companions put out to sea from Paos, and came to Perga and Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. It says, But going on from Perga, they arrived at Pisidian Antioch, and on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. And after reading the law and the prophets, the synagogue officials sent to them, saying, Brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say it. And Paul stood up, and motioning with his hand, he said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with an uplifted arm, he led them out from it. And for a period of about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land as an inheritance, all of which took about 450 years. And after these things, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. And then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And after he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, concerning whom he also testified and said, I have found David, a man, a son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do my will. From the, from the offspring of this man, according to promise, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus. After John had proclaimed before his coming a baptism of repentance for all the people of Israel. And while John was completing his course, he kept saying, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. Behold, one is coming after me, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. It says, Brethren, sons of Abraham's family, and those among you who fear God, to us the word of this salvation is sent out. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, recognizing neither him nor the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled these by condemning him. And though they found no ground for putting him to death, they asked Pilate that he be executed. And when they had carried out all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who came with him from, from Galilee to Jerusalem, the very ones who are now his witnesses to the people. And we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers, that God has fulfilled his promise to our children, and that he raised up Jesus, as it is also written in the second psalm, Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. And as for the fact that he raised him up from the dead, no more to return to decay, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore he also says in another psalm, Thou wilt not allow thy holy one to undergo decay. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his generation, fell asleep and was laid among his fathers and underwent decay. But he whom God raised did not undergo decay. Therefore let it be known to you, brethren, that through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And through him everyone who believes is freed from all things, from what you could not be freed through the law of Moses." Take heed, therefore, so that the things spoken of in the prophets may not come upon you. Behold, you scoffers, and marvel and perish. For I am accomplishing a work in your days, a work which you will never believe, though someone should describe it to you. In this particular passage, it records the first of Paul's sermons recorded in the book of Acts. And by this time, he was hardly a novice preacher. We know that he had preached in Damascus immediately after his conversion and during his three years in Arabia. And while serving as a pastor in Antioch, Syria, he also proclaimed the message. And he, and he told us, and, and as we read throughout his word, it was for that purpose that he was called by God to proclaim God's news to all of mankind. 
In fact, Paul placed such a high premium on preaching the gospel that he said this in the book of Romans. He says, How then shall they call upon him whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? Paul understood the value and the importance, the preeminence that he placed upon the word of God to go into the world and to tell tell people and proclaim to man God's plan for mankind. As he talked with Timothy and even to Titus, he said these words. He says, preach the word, he says to Timothy. Speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine and speak with all authority, he told Titus. He emphasized the importance of preaching from a doctrinal and also from a point of authority. That when one says, what is God's plan for man, that we can stand before the world and declare with authority based on the authority of the Word of God. You know, Jesus said that we're to go into all the world. We're to make disciples as we're going. We're to baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And we're to teach that others would observe that which He has commanded us. He says, all authority has been given to me. When people come in contact with us, we can declare with great authority. Somebody says, who do you think you are telling me where this world is heading? Who do you think you are trying to tell me what God's plan is for my life or what God's plan is for this world or for all of mankind? Who do you think you are? And in all humility, we can declare to them the same thing that Moses declared and the same thing that as Moses went into Egypt and went into Pharaoh's court and said to them, Hey, it's time that you let this people go. He looked at him and says, who do you think you are? And he said, to tell him, Pharaoh, that I am sent you. In John 8, 58, Jesus declared that even before Abraham existed, I am. And those who heard it realized that he had claimed to be the very God who told Moses the same thing when he went to Pharaoh. And they picked up stones to kill him, but because that wasn't God's plan... It didn't come to fruition. But the reality of when we are confronted by people in our life and we can declaratively tell them with all the authority of God, this is without question and without apology God's plan for man. And that's exactly what Paul addresses to his audience as we see here in Acts chapter 13. The point is very clear. God's plan for man has been clearly revealed in God's word that is found in written form. In the Bible, all that man needs to know about the past, the present, and the future has been given to us. And in it, we're taught truth. We're rebuked for sin. We're corrected when we're wrong. And we're told how to get right with God. Everything that we need to know is declared to us clearly in the Word of God. And the only way that we'll learn any of this is by being exposed to God's message to mankind. And the reason I say that is I lay a foundation of something we'll talk about in a minute, but the importance of recognizing the authority of this book. So many people we come in contact with will say, well, you know what, I don't believe in the Bible. Or, you know, I've read it and I'm not interested in it. Or, what's, you, know, you know, we've got other books in our religion that we declare is just as valid or even more so than the Bible. They were later revelations that were given to us and this book isn't complete yet and God's still trying to get His information that He wants passed on to us. And I'm here to tell you as we look at this passage, you will see definitively, hopefully once and for all, why we can put all of our faith and confidence in this complete work of God. 
We'll see that in a minute. As we look back here at Acts chapter 13, I'll give you a little bit of background before we look at our topic, and that is, uh, it says in verse 13, Now Paul and his companions put out to sea from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia. Uh, We know from the last time that we were together that Paul and Barnabas had went to Barnabas' hometown, so to speak, his home island of Cyprus that he went across the whole entire island of Cyprus from one end to the other, and that they preached the gospel of Jesus Christ. We know that there was a tremendous opposition to it that was found. There was a great spiritual battle everywhere that they go, and we'll see this consistently. Everywhere that they go and they proclaim God's plan for man, there will be groups of people who will embrace that truth, and there will be others who try to shut them up. I hope that once and for all we understand that as we share with people that God brings into our life, whether it's friends or family or co-workers or customers or suppliers or employees or whoever it is that God brings into our life, I would hope that we understand once and for all there will be those who embrace the message and there will be those who oppose it. But that should not deter us from sharing it. God's plan for man. They set out to sea from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. There are a lot of conjecture as to why John left. Some thought he was offended because from this point on it was Paul and Barnabas. Before that it was Barnabas and Paul. Barnabas was his cousin, Barnabas was his mentor, and he felt that Paul was usurping his authority or his position. That was one of the thoughts. Another thought was that John Mark came from a very wealthy background, a very um, background of privilege and uh, as he began to recognize the opposition and the the danger and that which was out there that laid ahead, he thought, you know what, I'm not ready for this yet. And so he turned around and went home. We don't really know, but we know one thing about John Mark, and that is this, that even though at this particular time he is a failure, that God loves to give us second chances. Because it was later in life who Paul said to Timothy, go and bring Mark to me because he is useful to me at this point. So thank God for second chances. We have a great God, and He's a God of second chances and third chances, and some of us know 40th and 50th chances. You know, we praise God for that. But we are never a failure. Failure is an event that happens at a moment in time. It is not a person. You are never a failure because you made a mistake. To compound the mistake is not recognizing the mistake, learning from it, and moving forward. You know, there's a lot to be said about the person who does that. But we're not failures because we make a mistake. Uh, We're human beings that are born with a sinful nature. But praise God, as we go through, we'll see the importance of that. You know, as as Luke says, he goes, But going on from Perga, they arrived at Pisidian Antioch. It's not to be uh, confused with Antioch in Syria where they started out. This is Paul's hometown, his home country, so to speak. And it says, And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and they sat down. What we're seeing is a glimpse here of what typically took place on a normal Sabbath day. It says they went into the synagogue, and the purpose that they went into the synagogue was in the synagogue they would find people who are interested in knowing about God. Isn't that something? They would find people who are interested in learning about God and God's plan for man. And that is why as people gather in churches throughout our country, it is my prayer and it is my hope that when people gather because they have an interest in knowing about God, that those would understand, who stand before them, understand the importance and the seriousness of opening up the Word of God and declaring with authority what that plan is. There is already a hunger that is there. When we were invited to, the first time we ever went to a Bible-teaching church, we went because they offered us lunch afterwards... I'll admit that. That was probably the primary motivating factor. 
But the secondary reason was because we had an interest in finding out something about God and we assumed if we went to a church that that is probably the best place to find out. You got it? Because you kind of, you know, it's kind of, it's an accepted given thing. So as, as they came to the synagogue, they realized that there would be people there who are interested in religious truth. And further, in keeping up with their custom, they would invite a visiting rabbi to stand up and declare what that truth was that they would share. But they would do it after, as we notice here, there was a, there was a structure that was there. It says in verse 15, after reading of the law and the prophets... If you recall, some of you may recall, Jesus went into the synagogue and there was a time where he asked them to bring the scroll to him. He brought the specific scroll that he asked of. They opened the scroll, he began to read it and it was a prophecy from the book of Isaiah. He read that scroll and as after he was finished reading the portions in which he read, they sat silently and quietly to listen to him. Now what? Explain the meaning of that scroll or that text. So as we open scripture or the Bible and we read a passage, I'm assuming that it's time now to explain the meaning of this passage and to put it into uh, words or meaning or an understanding that every one of us can go away and go, now I understand what it says, now I understand what I should do, and now I'm going to leave here and I'm going to act upon it. That's exactly what happened. So as they came in, they read from the Law and the Prophets, and the opening was Deuteronomy 6.4, which was the Shema, or, or uh, the, the recitation of it, the Jewish profession of faith, which is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. That's how they start out every one of their services together. Afterwards, they now said, sent for Paul, and had him come forward and say, Is there anything that you can say to us about this text that was just read? And notice what he did. He says, and he stood up and motioning with his hand. Isn't that a great... I mean, the this, this whole scene of this is just incredible to me. How refreshing that it is that you've got a group of people who say, hey, can, can you explain to me, can you explain to us what was just read because we want to know about God. We want to know about His truth. We want to know about God's plan for man. Can you explain it? How refreshing that is to have that kind of hunger. And, and the only way I can illustrate it is a phone call that I got Friday was from a, a guy who plays for the uh, Seattle Mariners. His name is Dan Wilson. He's a great guy. He called, uh, called our home, left a message for me and said, Chuck, we're coming into town Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday to play the Angels. And we want you to come and teach us a Bible study. We don't care what day you come. We don't care when you want to come. If you want to come at after the game, late at night, if you want to come in early in the morning, if you want to come at lunchtime, we don't care when you want to come, but we want you to come and teach the Bible. And man, I'll tell you what, you get excited about phone calls like that, you know, and if you can't fit that into your schedule, he's very apologetic, I know it's last minute, I know you're busy, but can you work it out? We don't care if you come in the morning, in the afternoon, or night, or in the middle of the night. And I'm thinking I could probably squeeze out a little bit of time with that kind of time constraint. You know what I mean? It's like, oh, I think we could probably work something out. But that, that refreshing attitude of, man, you know what, we have a hunger and a thirst to know God's truth. You come each week with the same hunger and thirst. And hopefully those who you invite, they come. Come because they believe that when they come here, they're going to learn something about God and God's plan for you as an individual as well as God's plan for all of mankind. And you won't be disappointed because in this passage, we clearly see God's plan for man. Paul sees the moment. Think about it. Do you have anything to say to us about God's plan for man? 
Uh, you know what? I don't know. That's why some of us are. It's like, you know, hey, you know, you got people, you work with people, and they say stuff like this to you. You know what? I don't know what this world's coming to. And you go like this. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I know what you mean. I don't know. I don't know. What do you mean you don't know? I mean, don't you ever walk away going, wow, that was like, what must I do to be saved? I mean, that's what that's like. It's like, you know, man, I don't know. My mom's sick or I got something in the hospital. And Man, you know what? It's like, I just don't know. I just don't know what this life is all about. And then in our ignorance, we sit around going, I want to tell you, but I'm just like, and then we walk away going, oh, wow, that was a perfect opportunity. Wasn't it? Man, that was a good one. I, I sure hope one of those come along again sometime in my lifetime because I'll be ready next time. And you know, maybe we should be ready every time. Why do you think Peter says that we're to be able to give an answer, our defense for the hope that is within us? The next time someone asks you what God's plan is for man or where this world's coming to or what this world is all about, you're going to be able to go right back to this passage and in a clear, concise way and, and a, not in a, you know, a, an academic, uh, you know, sterile way, but in a conversational way, you'll be able to share with them God's plan for man. That's my hope. That's my prayer. There are three things that we look at here. Which, which, um, if there's any question about whether or not this is God's plan for man, as you read through this passage, what I did was I took a yellow marker and I highlighted um, every time the word God or every time the word a personal pronoun or the proper name of God or the personal pronoun for God, whether it was he or him, whether it was Jesus or whatever it was, and I just kind of gave a little yellow mark over it. And what you'll find as you go through it is, man, you know what? It jumps out of the pages at you that, you know what? This is all about God and his plan for man. And as we see it, the proper names and the pronouns that are used just jump out at the page. If you want, as we go through it, just underline it or write in it. Oh, can, let, let me just, it is not a sin to make a mark in your Bible. All right, I just want to get that clear right now. Some of you are like, going, he's asking me to sin, and, you know, and you're kind of burdened by that. I just want to free you up. It's all right. Get that pencil. You can underline, circle, make notes. Go crazy, man. I mean, that's what Bible study is all about. Number one, first thing that we're going to look at is this, that Jesus... As we see it, everything in this passage, by the way, is about Jesus Christ. And we see that Jesus is the culmination of all history. The culmination of all history. Notice in verses 17 through 22. Notice what he said. I like this. And he he gave it one of these. You ever do that as a parent? It's like, just be quiet and listen. Motioning with his hand. Shh. Listen to this. Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with an uplifted arm, he led them out from it. And for a period of about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land as an inheritance, all of which took about 450 years. After these things, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. And then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And after he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, concerning whom he also testified and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do my will. 
Every Jew and God-fearing Gentile familiar with the history of Israel and the Old Testament scriptures knew exactly where the world was and is headed. And the culmination of history is the coming kingdom of the Messiah. That's the culmination of all history, man's fellowship with God that was shattered by the fall of man. Last night we had an opportunity, Lynn and I speak to a group that we were with, and uh, basically the bottom line of that is that many people don't understand and recognize that we, were, we are born into the world, sinners, what God calls a sinner alienated and separated from God. There was a strategic or historic moment in time when our forefather, Adam, sinned before God. God told him not to do something. He did it anyway. And at that time, the Bible was very clear that sin entered into the world. And with sin came along death. The prophet Ezekiel says that the soul that sins shall die. If anybody ever asks someday, why do we have to die? You can with authority say it's because we are sinners. It's a consequence of our rebellion against God. And that person would say, but I don't sin. I'm a good person. And all you have to do is ask him some very simple questions. Have you ever lied? Have you ever cheated? Have you ever stolen? Have you always honored God? Have you always honored your mother and your father? Have you ever wanted something that somebody else has? And they say, yes, that they have. God says that's guilty of sin. We're born into the world separated from God. We're sinners. Every one of us, that's why we all die. People don't want to hear that. They think, man, that's, that's a bummer. That's bad news. It's truth. It is bad news. And if you don't believe that, all you have to do is ask them the question, are there things that are true about your physical condition that are a direct result of your parenting or your heritage? You're a certain color of skin. You're a certain height. You're a certain weight or bone composition or muscular composition. You have blue eyes or brown eyes or certain whatever it is, color hair, until you change it and work it out. But the bottom line is this. There are, you can change that, but there are some things you cannot change. And you can say, I don't like that. And you can say, hey, too bad. That's the way it is. Because that's the heritage. That is the gene pool that you swam in and came up out of. <laughs> don't make me go there. But, and so, you know, the bottom line of this is that they understood... Men of Israel, those who fear God, understood they had a problem called sin. They were separated from God. God's plan for man was that one day man would be restored when the Messiah, the Savior, came and delivered men from the bondage of sin. History would ultimately resolve itself into the redeemed being back in full fellowship with God and giving Him glory. Jesus' incarnation... Becoming a man, taking on flesh, his sacrificial death upon the cross, his resurrection from the dead, and his second coming to set up his earthly millennial reign and his eternal rule over the new heavens and the new earth are the climax of history and God's plan for man. Jesus Christ is the culmination of history. And Paul intended to demonstrate and prove this to his audience today as he explained the scripture to them that Jesus Christ of Nazareth is the long-awaited Messiah of God. But in order to do so, he first had to get their attention. And the, re and the way he got their attention was to align himself with them because one thing was dear to every person in the synagogue listening to his words, and that was God's providential care of the nation of Israel. And three things jumped out at me as I was reading this. The first was this, notice this. Don't ever forget that God chose us. The God of this people chose our fathers. And he made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. God's choice of Israel, as we read through the word of God, had nothing to do with them. They weren't the biggest, 
They weren't the brightest, most talented, best looking, wealthiest, even most righteous people on the face of the earth. And in fact, in many ways, they were quite contrary. But nonetheless, God chose them. And it's important and yet an often overlooked truth that God does what He does because He is God. He chooses whom He chooses because He has the prerogative and the privilege of doing so because He is God. Because He is an authority. Because it's His choice. He chose Israel. Why? Just simply because He chose them. And He was going to demonstrate through them His greatness and His love for all of mankind. He chose them... And it was important that Paul made this clear to them. Remember how God chose us. He chose us from all the nations of the world because it's more about Him and a lot less about us. And it would be important as Paul would now go into all the world and proclaim God's plan to man. The same way God chose Israel is the same way God chooses you and me. Because He chooses. He uplifted them with His victorious right arm. He says, don't forget what He did for us. He brought us out of Egypt. He took us into the wilderness. He he uplifted us with His victorious right hand. Remember when Pharaoh wouldn't let us go, what God did, the signs and the wonders and the miracles and the power that He displayed, how awesome our God is. And when He were out in the wilderness, He provided for our people, millions of us, day in and day out. In the desert, He provided water and food where there was nothing but from God. What's the big deal about that? He created the universe out of nothing. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the word created has to do with He created from nothing. All of mankind, we create from stuff that God started with. Not God, He started it all with nothing, but a thought and a word. He spoke the word into existence. And He's saying to them, and He's saying to us, and it's a reminder to me, never forget how awesome is our God. Never forget how worthy He is to be praised. Never forget the privilege that we have that He provides for us every single day of our life. A roof over our head and clothes on our back and food on our table. Our God is truly an awesome God and we must never forget that. And the recanting of the history of Israel is a reminder to them and also to us how awesome our God is. When was the last time you praised Him and thanked Him for what He does in your life? Do not fear. The first thing that came to mind when I heard those words or saw those words uplifted arm, do not fear for I am with you. Be not dismayed for I am your God. I will uphold you. I will uplift you. I will strengthen you. Surely I'll uphold you and uplift you with my victorious right hand. Isaiah 41.10 God's continual care, His provision must never be forgotten. And yet notice what He also did in verse 18. He put up with them. Man, I'll tell you what, that's a, this is a three-point sermon right here and now. It's like, you know, he chose them because he did. He, he lifted them up and provided for them because he chose to. And the last thing is, and even when they are grumbling and moaning, can you imagine? They're wandering around in the desert. There's nothing there to eat or drink. And then they started complaining about what God was serving. I mean, if that is not, you know, symbolic of the sinful nature of man, I don't know what is. And every one of us are guilty of it. Who hasn't complained? You know what? Oh, praise God. Thank God, man. I'm in our first apartment. Praise God. Thank God. I bought our first house. Praise God. Thank God, man. We got in a bigger house because that house is too little. We can't even make that house work no more. You know what I mean? It's like, we're never satisfied. You know, God, what's up with that? Why aren't you doing for us what you're doing for the other people that we see in our life? And God says, just that that in and of itself. 
is just a reflection of a sinful heart. He put up with them. The words put up with have to do with two things. One is he cared for them, but also it means that, hey, gets, in the Hebrew it means this, he just put up with them. You know, you ever, you ever feel like that when you're dealing with maybe your children or somebody in your life? It's just like there. Sometimes in our life, you know what? Frankly, we just put up with them. You just put up with them, man. They just test you and push you and shove you and just keep on pushing your buttons. And you know what? You love them because they're your children, but you just put up with them because right at this point in their life, they're just pretty stupid. You know what I mean? You just pray for them and you just kind of go. And, and then when you live long enough, you see a couple of them come out of the other side of that darkness. You know? And, and, then, and then you hope that they go back in as missionaries. <laughs> you know? Hey, can you tell her or him or whatever that, hey, you know what? I know I was like that once, and you know what? They're not as stupid as they look. You know? That's kind of the way it is with God and his relationship to mankind. Number two, Jesus Christ is not only the culmination of all of history, as we see in this passage. And notice he says, when he destroyed seven nations, the land of Canaan, he distributed their land as an inheritance, all of which took about 400 years in Deuteronomy 8. He also said, hey, listen... I'm destroying all these people in front of you. I'm giving all the work that they did. They built all these houses. They built up their vineyards. They built everything. I'm giving them into your hands, but don't forget that I'm the one who gave them. Because what's going to happen is you're going to get there and you're going to start feeling a little cocky about yourself, a little arrogant, thinking, man, look what we did. Stepping back saying, oh, man, look what we did. God says, don't forget, you didn't do any of it. I did it all for you. It says, then they asked for, then he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king. God gave him Saul, the son of Kish. The apostle Paul, Saul of Tarsus, was named after Saul. And yet there was a tremendous transformation in the heart of Saul of Tarsus when he came to faith in Christ and he changed his name to Paul, which means small, humble. He was named after one of the most arrogant kings that ever existed in the history of Israel. And he took a name, Paul, which was 180 degrees to the opposite. It says, and, after, and notice this, after he, who, God, had removed who? Saul. Saul was a big, bad man, but he ain't as bad as God. God took him down, and notice what else he did. And he raised up David to be their king. How did, how did, how did God choose David? The Bible says they paraded all these guys in front, of, in front of Nathan the prophet. And then Eliab came walking in, man. He was like the prototypical athlete of our day. You know, the one where the scouts go out and say, man, he's the top five recruits of this country, whether it's baseball or football or whatever, and said, man, look at this guy, man. He's like 6'5", 240. He can run the 40 and 4'3". He's got a 48-inch vertical leap. Man, he can throw a 98-mile-an-hour changeup, you know. And that's, see, whatever it takes for you to understand the Word of God. You know what I mean? (laughs) And, uh... And, and you know what? But the exciting thing is this, is that, you know, and he said, no, it's not, that, that none of them are the right one. And they're like, no, we're out of choices. And I said, well, are you sure? And they said, well, we got one left, some ruddy little guy, some little punk kid that's out taking care of sheep. Well, bring him in. Brought him in, this little red-headed shepherd boy. So this little punk, this little short kid, this big, like this tall. He's like David Eckstein of the Angels. He's like this big. And, and, and the only reason I bring him up because he has the same heart that David had. Because God doesn't look at the outward appearance. Heart. Man, isn't that great about choosing? God looks at the heart. He knows when your heart is right before God. He knows when you are seeking Him. He knows when you are sincere in your search for truth. And you know what the Bible says? For that person, you'll never be disappointed. That God will reveal Himself to you. Isn't that great? The history of Israel was to help them understand that the culmination of all of history was to point to what God would do through his Savior. Now, the important part is this, as we look at that, and that's the fulfillment of prophecy is Jesus Christ. 
Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all of God's promises. Notice what he says, according to the promise. According to the promise, verse 23. From the offspring of this man, according to promise. This is going to answer for all of us, hopefully once and for all, the importance of placing the final authority on the complete work of God in written form, the Bible, in its entirety, why we believe the Bible to be what we believe it to be, and that is the definitive, final word of God for God's plan for man. Why we believe it to be true. And it has to do with this, the fulfillment of prophecy. Everything that God promised was fulfilled in the one person, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. One person. One person only. The Word of God is promised by God. The Old Testament history points to Jesus Christ. Old Testament prophecy points to Jesus Christ. Let me just share some of these with you. He was the seed of a woman who, was bru- who bruised the serpent's head. He was the virgin-born son who was na- whose name was Emmanuel, or God with us. He was a wonderful counselor, mighty God of Isaiah. He was born in Bethlehem. Jesus was, according to Micah 5.2, born in Bethlehem. He was the Messiah, and the Messiah was to be the descendant of Abraham and Jacob and Jesse, and Jesus was. He was to be the descendant of David, as we read here, and Jesus was. He was to be a priest after the order of Melchizedek, and Jesus was. Centuries before Jesus rode on a donkey into Jerusalem, Zechariah 9.9 predicted the Savior would do just that. Psalm 41.9 predicted his betrayal. Zechariah 11.12, the exact amount of money he would receive for doing it. The fulfillment of these prophecies and dozens more provide overwhelming proof that Jesus of Nazareth was indeed Israel's prophesied and long-awaited Savior. We need to look at this because the Bible says that he is the Savior of the world. From the offspring of this man, David, according to promise, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus. There's no question as to his identity. I want to take a moment in the time that we have left, and I want to make this point as clear as possible so that there will no longer be any doubts in any of your hearts about the authority of the Word of God. We run into people all the time who would challenge us, well, you have the Bible and we have our books. Okay? Well, why do you believe in your books or in your writing? Or why don't you believe in the Bible? Or why do you believe that the Bible contradicts itself? Or what, you know, whatever the reasons are why you don't believe that this is God's word in written form. I want to take a moment and explain to you in a very clear, concise way, hopefully, how true and reliable and accurate the Bible is. In the Old Testament, there are 60 major messianic promises or prophecies that have to do with the culmination of all history is that God would redeem man back to himself after our fellowship with God was broken by sin. The culmination of it was that God would send a Savior into the world to free man from the bondage of sin and the consequences thereof. Spiritual death, physical death. As we look at all of these, we need to realize there's 60 prophecies, 270 what they would call ramifications of these 60 prophecies. Every one of them are fulfilled in one person in history, Jesus Christ. Stop and think about it this way. God was putting together an address that we can drive to as we're driving along looking for God's plan for man. 
he was giving us an address to go to, a Thomas Brother map book, so to speak, on how to find God's plan for man. Jesus Christ's address is given to us in the form of prophecy. You don't realize, and sometimes I don't realize, the significance of our address. Where we live, so to speak, separates us from the other six billion people on the planet. Think about that. If you give someone your address, it separates you from everybody else in this room unless there's another person that lives at the same address. But how amazing that is, just like Social Security number or anything like that that separates us from everything else. Jesus Christ is separated from all of mankind by the address that God gives him so that man who is looking for him will find him and not be disappointed. Here are some of the prophecies that are given. The specifics are here. Now, God wrote an address in history to single out his son, the Messiah, the Savior of mankind, from anyone else who ever lived past, present, or future. Okay, there are over 300 references to his coming, and I want you to listen to this carefully because this is incredible. Using the science of probability, we find the chances of just 48 of the 60 of these prophecies being fulfilled in one person to be right, right at 1 in 10 to the 157th power, which is 10 or 1 with 157 zeros following it. That is the probability of all of it. Sometimes people go, well, you don't have a rational faith. You don't have a reasonable faith. You're just all emotional about it. You know, you don't have any basis for what you believe. That is nonsense. We have a reasonable, rational faith. And just this in and of itself, the probability of one person in 10 to the 157th power fulfilling 48 of the 60, yet alone all 60, the probability is Jesus Christ fulfilled all of them. Now, some people say, well, you know what, though, but this stuff was all written after Jesus lived. And you say, you know what, that's not true. Because the, some of the manuscripts where there's no question about it were written 200 years before Jesus was ever born in Bethlehem. And so we can go back to predictions, we'll call it that, or the address of the Messiah was written 200 years before Jesus was ever born. So it's not where, okay, People said, well, we really like this Jesus of Nazareth, and we're going to make him out to be the Messiah, and the only way it's going to happen is we're going to have to backdate all of our paperwork so we got a paper trail that will cover our bases for our theory. No, 200 years before, it was all there, and everything that was told of the Messiah, what to look for, who he would be, and what he would do, was given to us. There was a 200-year gap between when the prophecies were recorded and when they were fulfilled in Jesus. Now, let me read this to you so I don't miss any of this. Here are the details. I've already mentioned to begin with, we need to go back to Genesis 3.15. Here we have the first messianic prophecy, which was this. Only one man was born of the seed of a woman. All others are born of the seed of man. Follow that? Genesis 9 and 10 narrowed the address down further. How do we know that Jesus is the Savior of the world? Well, Noah had three sons, Shem, Jepheth, and Ham. Today, all the nations of the world can be traced back to these three men. But in this passage, God effectively eliminated two-thirds of them from the line of Messiahship. The Messiah will come through the lineage of Shem. Continuing on to the year 2000 B.C., God called a man named Abraham out of the Ur of the Chaldees. With Abraham, God became still more specific, stating that the Messiah or Savior will be one of his descendants. All the families of the earth will be blessed through Abraham. Abraham had two sons, Isaac and, Jacob, Isaac and Ishmael, but many of his descendants were eliminated when God selected the second son, Jake, uh, Isaac. And uh, as we go through it, notice, Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau. God chose the line of Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons, out of which he developed the 12 tribes of Israel. God singled out the tribe of Judah. 
and eliminated 11 twelfths of the Israelite tribes. All the family lines within Judah, the, the line of Jesse was the divine choice. And as you can see all this happening, you begin to realize, man, God's weeding out everything along the way, making it as clear as possible so we don't miss who Jesus is. It says, Jesse had eight children in 2 Samuel 7, Jeremiah 23. God eliminated seven-eighths of them. We read that God's, uh, God's man will not only be of the seed of a woman, the lineage of Shem, the race of the Jews, the line of Isaac, the line of Jacob, the tribe of Judah, but that he will also be of the house of David, which we just read according to the promise of God. Prophecy dating to 12, uh, 1012 B.C. predicts that this man, the Messiah, the Savior, his hands would be pierced and his feet would be pierced by crucifixion. And this description was written 800 years before Rome ever crucified anybody. Isaiah 7.14 adds, The man will be born of a a virgin, a natural birth of unnatural conception, a criterion beyond any planning and control by any human being. Several prophecies recorded in Isaiah and the Psalms describe the social climate response that God's man will encounter, his own people, the Jews will reject him, the Gentiles will believe in him, there will be a forerunner for him, uh, a voice in the wilderness, one crying out or preparing the way of the Lord, which brings us back to Acts 13. Now notice in Acts 13, verse 24. Says and John after after uh, John had proclaimed before his coming a baptism of repentance to all people. So John had already been telling people to turn from sin and turn back to God. That was what his responsibility was. And while John was completing his course, he kept saying, "What do you suppose that I am? Do you suppose that I am He? Well, I'm not. Behold, one who is coming after me, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie." John the Baptist and those who were listening to this message understood without any question that John the Baptist, according to the words of Jesus up until that time, was the greatest man who had ever lived on the face of the earth. There was no question as to him identifying Jesus Christ as the Savior of the world. When he first saw Jesus, the crowds that were following, he said, listen, don't follow me anymore. I'm not even worthy to untie the sandal of the one who is coming after me. I am merely fulfilling the prophecy that was written in Isaiah to make straight the ways of God and preparing your hearts to receive him when he came. And he was kind of like, you know, the secondary act at a concert that said, don't get too excited about me. The main event is coming as right off stage. And when Jesus came, he told everyone who was in his ear, ear hearing, he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There was no question that John the Baptist identified Jesus Christ as the Savior of the world, the promised one of God. There was no question whatsoever. And every person in that synagogue that day who were listening to the words of God recognized they were true, that if John the Baptist was as great as they claimed he was, that what he said about Jesus had to be true. Otherwise, he was not great at all, but he was another liar and another imposter who led people away from the truth of God. They believed John the Baptist was the one who was crying in the wilderness, making a preparation for the way of God, the plan of God for man that was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. As we go through this, the significance of all of this, I'm going to just summarize it this way. Those who would argue with you that, well, you know what, that's just a coincidence. What's a coincidence? Well, the fulfillment of prophecy that, you know, Jesus was crucified, Jesus rode on a donkey, Jesus was raised again three days from the dead, or, you know, none of that really means anything to you. Well, let me just share this with you. The manuscript for Science Speaks 
has been carefully reviewed by a committee of the American Scientific Affiliation members and by the Executive Council of the same group and has been found in general to be dependable, accurate in regard to scientific material presented. The mathematical analysis included is based upon principles of probability which are thoroughly sound. Professor Stoner then takes what we just learned, the 48 prophecies of 60, not to mention all 60 of 60 and 270 ramifications, but here's the way he sums it all up so we all understand it. Saying the following probabilities are taken from that book to show that coincidence is ruled out by the science of probability. The, the, the stoner says that by using the modern science of probability in reference to just eight prophecies, eight, not 48 and not all 60, but just eight, take any eight that you want and apply them to Jesus Christ, here's what he says. We find that the chance that any one man might have lived down to the present time and fulfilled all eight prophecies is one in ten to the 17th power. That would be one with 17 zeros after it. And he says, in order to help us comprehend the staggering probability, yet alone one with 157 zeros following it, here's the way he illustrates it. He says, we can take 10 to the 17th power silver dollars, lay them on the face of Texas. They will cover all the state two feet deep. Now mark one of these silver dollars and stir the whole mass thoroughly over the state. Blindfold a man and tell him he can travel as far as he wishes, north, south, east, or west, but he must pick up just one silver dollar and say that is the right one. What chance would he have of getting the right one? The same chance that the prophets would have had of writing these eight prophecies and having them all come true in any one man. From, this, from their day to the present day, providing they wrote them in their own wisdom. Now, these prophecies were either given by inspiration of God or the prophets just wrote them as they thought they should be written. In such a case, the prophets had just one chance in 10 to the 17th power of having them come true in any man, but they all came true in Jesus Christ. This means the fulfillment of these eight prophecies alone proves that God inspired the writing of these prophecies to a definiteness which lacks only one chance in 10 to the 17th power of being absolute. What is God's plan for man? To point mankind to Jesus Christ as the Savior of the world. He is the culmination of all history he is the fulfillment of prophecy and everything that God does, he puts in writing ahead of time so that there can be no doubt or denying the accuracy of what he is saying. They use the word of God because the word of God is the final authority for all of God's plan for man. We must also use the word of God when we are going to, in a reasonable, rational way, lead people to saving faith in the Savior, the one Savior, the only Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. As we conclude this message and we look in verses 38 through 41, I want you to see the summation of everything that the Apostle Paul says to these Jews and God-fearing Gentiles, that Jesus Christ is the justifier of sinners. Him and Him alone. You know, some have said that justification is the act by which God makes that which we've done as if it happened or just as if it happened no more, and that's not accurate at all. Justification is the act by which God attributes the righteousness of Jesus Christ onto the account of us who are sinners before God. We will always and have always been born into the world sinners. We will always be sinners before God, but it is Jesus Christ, His death on the cross, and our belief in that. That is what God uses to declare or, or to, to put onto our account the righteousness of Christ. 
Notice what he says. And we jump down to verse uh, 38 and we'll uh, wrap it up on this. Therefore, let it be made known to you, brethren, that through him, through who? Through Jesus Christ, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. How can man be forgiven of the problem of sin in their life? Through faith and trust in Jesus Christ and in him alone. Through him, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. There is no other way to heaven. There is no other name under heaven given by which men can be saved. There is no other authority by which man can claim in the presence of God, you have to let me into heaven because of this, that, or the other thing. It is all Jesus Christ and Him alone. All of history is pointed to Him. All of prophecy is pointed to Him. God has put it all in writing just as it is written. Forgiveness of sin is proclaimed to you. And through Him, notice, everyone who believes... Here's another thing it eliminates. People trying to work their way to heaven, trying to good, do good things, trying to, you know, thinking they come into church or reading their Bible or giving money or doing good stuff, somehow is going to get them to heaven. It's by grace we're saved through faith and not of ourselves. It's a gift from God so that no one can boast. God chooses to reveal that message to you and He also chooses you to respond and receive that message. You can't work your way to heaven. You can't do enough good things. Jesus Christ is God's plan for man to reconcile or redeem man back to God. God in Christ reconciling the world unto Himself. Colossians chapter 1, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, read it because in it, those who believe are freed from all things. Isn't that great? We're freed from all things. Everyone who believes is free from all things from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. He say, man, you're all frustrated trying to live a good life, trying to keep the commandments, trying to do the will of God or the, you know, by following the, the statutes or commandments of God, and you fail miserably. You try not to lie, and yet you lie. You try not to steal, and yet you steal. You try not to cheat people, yet you cheat. You try not to lose your temper, and you lose your temper. You're trying so hard, and you just can't get free from it. But thanks be to God for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who frees us from all things. Isn't that great? What is God's plan for man? Number one, Jesus Christ is a culmination of all history. Number two, Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all prophecy. And number three, Jesus Christ and Him alone is the justifier of all sinners. There is no other way to be made right or reconciled with God than through Jesus Christ. The question that you have to ask yourself is at what point in your life have you recognized you are a sinner? Have you responded with faith to the finished work of Christ after repenting from sin and turning back to God? The Bible says that an historic moment in time that God declares you just. The act of justification is a moment in time where God says, you, you who are a sinner are now justified by the righteousness of Christ and not of your own doing. It is by grace that I choose you to save you, to reconcile you to myself, to spend eternity with you so that we can have fellowship together again as we once did in the past before our father Adam sinned. That is God's plan for man. There is no other plan. And I'm going to end, you, end on this warning that he gives as well. And he says this, Take heed therefore in verse 40 that the things spoken of in the prophets may not come upon you. Not only do the prophets warn them, uh, not only do the prophets tell them that Jesus Christ is the one you're looking for, but the same prophets warn that, hey, you know what? You better not reject Him as Messiah. Behold, you scoffers, the world we live in, and marvel and perish, for I am accomplishing a work in your days, a work which you will never believe, though someone should describe it to you. Do you know anybody? that you've shared with, that God's plan for them is that they come to faith and trust in Jesus Christ as their Savior, who scoff 
who mock, who say, I don't believe that, even when you lay out all of the evidence. These people read the scriptures day in and day out, and they missed Jesus Christ as the roadmap that God had laid out in the Word of God. The law was a tutor to lead them to Jesus Christ. It was the Thomas Brothers map book that said, make a left on this street, a right on that street. When you get to the end of the road, you're going to see a man, a person. He is Jesus Christ, the Lord. A Savior has been born unto you today, the city of David, who is Christ the Lord. Do you know Him as your Savior? God's plan for man is that you come to faith in Jesus Christ. There is no other way. Father, thank You for the Word. Thank You for the reliability, the trustworthiness of it, that we who have access to it would study it and spend more time understanding that everything that You promise has been put in writing way before it ever has taken place. Even that which is yet to come in the future, we have it in writing before us, and we know Your plans for man. Your plan is not for calamity. Your plan is not for distress. Your plan is to introduce the world to your Savior, your love, the love of God that's found in Jesus Christ of Nazareth. God, He is the Lord Jesus Christ who has been risen from the dead after dying upon the cross for the sins of those who would believe. To everyone who believes, God, I just pray that those who are listening to these words would come to a point of recognizing their own sinfulness, their own rebellion before you. That they would repent, turn from sin and turn to God. And that they would humble themselves and trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sin. Believing he died on the cross for them. Believing he rose again from the dead. That he can offer, as he claims, forgiveness of sin and eternal life. God, we are just grateful that if any man's in Christ, he's a new creature. All things are passed away and all things become new. That you free us from all things. All the things that we struggled with in our life. That as new creatures, we have a new direction. There's a new way to live. There's a new spirit within us who teaches us of your truth and guides us into truth. God, we love you. We praise you. We thank you for your word. And we just ask that we would be strong and bold in our commitment as we run into people on a daily basis who are struggling to know that hope or the answer for the hope that was within us, that we would be bold and we would take advantage of the opportunities as even the Apostle Paul did to tell them to listen carefully. This is God's plan for man. We just thank you. We praise you that you've given it to us so that we would not only know it and that we can believe, but that we have the opportunity and privilege to share that with people whom we come into contact with on a daily basis, that they too can be delivered from sin and enter into relationship with God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.